Joe, play bouncer back there, man. Sure, Grace, just keep talking. It's not a big deal. <laughs> Literally not even looking at me still. <laughs> I know. I would rather the meet and greet go too long than too short. Um, so there's this thing, and I, I've talked about it before, but it's just really fascinating to me. Um, a, a large portion of time that I spend with my kids is in the car. Like, we don't really walk anywhere. Like, maybe the longest walk that Americans make is the Walmart parking lot. Like, that's it. All right, so it's like from where you start to where you're going, it's it. So the quality time walking or spending time with my kids, a lot of time is driving them from one thing that they have to do to driving them to the next thing that they have to do. And what is just crazy fascinating to me is that my kids have largely, when it comes to music, all music is happening right now for them. Like when I grew up, you listened to whatever somebody out in space chose for you on the radio. But because of technology, we can choose the music in the car that we listen to. It's nuts. And I noticed that with my kids, they hadn't experienced music that I listened to as a kid. And there's this cool thing that you get to do, which is you get to introduce your kids to music that you loved when you were a kid. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And for them, it might as well be brand new. Like it's pop music. You can play Bon Jovi right now. Well, not Jamie's kids, but most people's kids have not heard Bon Jovi, right? And they'll think that it's as new as Justin Bieber or whatever kids listen to today. I have no idea, all right? So I got in this thing where my kids heard uh, Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones and we got on this like trip where we started listening to punk rock music and we just started in the 70s and then started working our way forward and it occurred to me like I had all of these experiences with these this music that my kids didn't have and then when I started to realize we worked our way to pop punk music of the 2000s you're like Blink-182 and I started to realize that that's classic rock. And some of you don't even know what that is. So whatever music you were listening to in 1904, that's dinosaur music back there, all right? And it's this, it was just this moment where me and my kids are sharing an experience. And think about this. Isn't music this thing that takes you back to oftentimes the people that you first experienced it with? And you start to think of all the, you know, where you were at. You know, that was a middle school dance song. That was played at my prom. This was played at my wedding. This was, like music has this way where we experience it communally. We experience it together. And so for me and my kids, like this is what we do in the car. It's like we kind of, we'll pick a genre of like hair metal or, you know what I mean? Or we'll get real good music. We'll do Johnny Cash, right? And we'll work through it. And here's the beautiful thing about that is as we begin to listen to this music, they started to say, Dad, what is this song about? And that gets real tricky. I'm going to tell you real quick. And they start asking questions, and they start inter- interacting, and they start engaging with the music. And you start to talk about, it's like, well, in the 70s, you know, 60s and 70s, punk rock was like this political movement almost, and you got to have a blast beat and drums and all this other stuff. And so we start to, we tar- we start to experience it together. 
on the road. And I love that um, as, a, as a discipleship um, opportunity because the disciples in Mark chapter 10 are on a road trip with Jesus. They're road tripping. And they're walking places. And they've left the ministry in the north and they've went down to the south and they're on this road trip and they're experiencing things with Jesus. And Jesus is taking these as opportunities to coach up his boys. These are coachable, teachable moments. And, I, and God, the Holy Spirit, authored these in the text that we might get in the 1969 Volkswagen van with Jesus and have our own experiences watching him do things as we walk from A to B and we road trip together. So there's kind of two legs of the road trip today in Mark chapter 10 that I just want to walk next to Jesus together with to, to take a couple things from our master out of his road trip. Is that cool? Let's do it. Uh, before we do, let's pray and ask God's help. Lord knows we need all the prayer we can get. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. We thank you like a good father. You draw us in to unique experiences that you might teach us, correct us, coach us, and point us to the things in life that are most important. For my brothers and sisters in here, Holy Spirit, would you come and bring them to a further point of maturity through the preaching of your word. God, the Holy Spirit, I pray for my friends that are in here who have not yet trusted in your name, that you would break them from sin and cause them to take their first step on the journey with Jesus. God, would you come and help us on this pilgrimage of life? Would you walk with us? Would you talk with us? Would you slow our hearts down that we might abide? God, this is your space. And so do whatever you want and whoever you want here. Come and exceed expectations. Blow our minds. Amaze us again at the beauties of the gospel. Father, be the teacher and the pastor. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. If you've got a Bible, Mark chapter 10, uh, starting verse 17. Uh, we tackled this last week, but I didn't get into all of it uh, because I wanted to pick up and show you the connective tissue between what's happening with the reassuring ruler, what's happening next in the chapter Mark, and then in the subsequent two weeks, uh, the sermons will follow that same connective tissue uh, that, that is there. Mark 17 says, and as he was setting out on his journey, he's on a road trip. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We dealt with that last week. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, I have kept... Uh, all these I have kept from my youth. 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Christianity is Christ-centric. 
We follow Jesus. This whole thing is not about a preacher or the music or the baptism waters. Everything that we do in Christianity is Jesus-centered. Come follow me is the invitation Jesus gives. Disheartened, his face fell, sad, sorrowful. Disheartened by the saying what Jesus is teaching, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Right? And so we tackled this, so let's just kind of jog a little bit and recap what we talked about last week as we broke this down. This guy, we learn, is the rich young ruler, right? Between the synoptic gospels and Matthew and Luke, we learn that he is rich. He got that money. He's a ruler. He's got authority and influence. And that he's young. And I would argue this is the American trifecta. Like on social media, all of us want to be rich. All of us want to be young. Right? And I, I said this because of how much it costs to color some of y'all's hair. Right? And get your nails did. And people fighting for six-pack abs like they're 16. And brother, you ain't 16. All right? And we want to be a ruler. We want to be a shot caller. He's a first-round draft pick. He's the kind of person that maybe churches would be tempted to give preferential treatment to. Like he's got pull. He's got influence. And he comes to Jesus, and we, we would even say this, he's a seeker. He runs to Jesus and kneels down before Jesus, and he approaches Jesus, at least in a courteous way. And we said this about him. He comes to the right source with the wrong question. He comes to the right source with the wrong question. And Jesus, in response to them, like interacts with him about what is true goodness, who Jesus really is as the God who is good. And, and, and Jesus, even more so, takes him in a, like a Ray Comfort way to the law. He rolls out the law, but he doesn't give him all of the law. He gives him the second tablet of the law, purposely omitting covetousness. And so he says, he kind of lays out like, well, you know what the law says. Don't do this and don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And the brother comes in and with the audacity of Paul that we read later in the text, says, all of this I've kept from my youth. I am, if, to use Paul's words, I'm blameless outwardly. Which is curious, right? Because the, the dude has got money and he's got youth and he's got authority. And, and he's unfulfilled. Like on the outside, he looks moral and, and like... like he, we would use language like real dumb like this, like he's a good person. Come on now. He's a good kid. But on the inside, he's burning down. Jesus is going to say that he lacks something. And it's the very thing that will give him purpose and fulfillment and meaning. And he can chase all the money he wants. He can revel in how young he is. He can abuse all the authority he wants but he's unfulfilled. And I would argue this, his very question about an eternal life, saying, Jesus, how can I take up my cross and follow you? How can I surrender my life? How can I lay everything aside and come follow you? What he's coming to Jesus is, it's like, Jesus, I've got an awesome resume. How do I add eternal things to my already awesome life? It's like Jesus plus something. He wants to Jesus, come sprinkle a little of that special sauce on my life so that I know when I die, 
I continue to be awesome for eternity. And what Jesus asks him to do, and I don't think it's really about money, is that Jesus comes to him and calls him to let go of his idols. You you don't have a work life. You don't have a home life. You don't have a spiritual life. You have a life. And either you're surrendering all of it to Jesus, or you're trying to keep it all segmented in ways that God never intended. Or whoever would come to the Lord must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus isn't asking for a part of you. He's demanding all of you. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus is not going to change what he demands and he's not going to negotiate with him. Jesus is not going to take disciples who don't repent. So the rich young ruler, maybe we describe him this way, he's going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. And what I love about this text is as much on the outside he's got it together, on the inside he's a hot mess, Jesus looks at him and the text says that he loved him. And that's just not the feeling I get whenever I'm screwing up all week and I have to come to church. Like if I'm a hot mess on the inside, even though none of you may know it on the outside, I feel subtly that I got to get my junk together before I walk through these doors. But the truth of the text is, he comes to Jesus asking wrong questions, maybe smudging the law so that he looks blameless on the outside. He's unfulfilled. He walks to Jesus and Jesus looks at him and loves him. Same way he looks at some of you that walked in here and you blew it this week and Jesus looks at you and he loves you. Here's the thing that we said was maybe brutal about this. This man turns and puts his back to Jesus and walks away with his face sad, his face fell. And there's no reason to do that for anyone in here. Repent of your sin, believe the gospel, look full in his face, and walk with him the rest of your life. Amen? There's no reason to walk away sad. There's no reason to walk away sad. But the reality of walking away sad in this text is, if you look the love of God in the face, and you turn and put that in your rearview mirror, what are you going home to? Like a big screen TV, a car, trinkets, land? If the creator of the universe looks at you in love and you say, not that, I want to hold on to these accounts. Where does your life go from there? And so, on the first stage of the road trip, verse 17, he's in the south. Perea, he's on the way to Jerusalem. We're going to get to that in a minute. Here's the first observation of the road trip. And of the rich young ruler who I just described to you. On the road trip, Jesus meets people. On the road trip, walking with Jesus, Jesus meets people like the rich young ruler. The disciples see him deal with people like this. He is a case study. He's a living witness and a physical illustration of what your idols will do Keep you out of the kingdom of God. Here's the other thing they also saw about Jesus. He didn't treat the rich differently than the poor. Or let me say it this way. There wasn't one way to get to heaven for the rich and another way to get to heaven for the poor. The disciples and disciples today that are in this church learn from your master 
who meets people on the road. Learn from your master who had to handle a range of people. So let me pull this back into our discipleship, maybe of our kids and our friends and our neighbors and our house churches. Dads. Uh, so dad's in the house, right? Got a couple of you that are dads. What's interesting about this is, um, do you pray for your wife? When it comes to church, do you lead your kids to church? Do you pray for your elders and those in authority? It's weird that we might subtly think that our sons are going to love their wives more than we love their mother. You know why? They're watching us. How about moms? Do you respect your husband? I don't say always agree with him. God knows we're not asking for the impossible today. With God, all things are possible. Do you respect him? Do you honor him? Do you submit to him, follow him, support him, partner with him? It's weird that you might have expectations for your daughters to find the kind of worthy man worth partnering and following and respecting, but you don't respect the man that God gave you. Here's the thing. Our kids, they listen to what we say all the time. But tell me this isn't true that they're watching our example. And that so many people that I do marriage counseling with or premarital counseling with, I tell them, what you saw your parents do is the default setting on the VCR. Nobody even knows what a VCR is anymore. They're like, this illustration doesn't work. It's the blinking 12. You can reprogram it by the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, but your default setting is what you saw your parents do. So let me ask you this. Are you modeling for your kids with the unique relationships that you alone have an opportunity to disciple them in. Let me give you uh, another pet peeve. You go out of here and you go to the restaurant and you have a waitress. Right? And they see you pray. Now, some of our introverts in here, when you go to a restaurant, you're going to interact with that waitress and you're going to know her whole life story. Right? You're going to know her social security number and everything else about that person. Because my, my, or sorry, my extroverts here, that didn't make any sense. My extroverts here, you're going to like interact with that waitress and get to know them and, you know, and it's going to be this thing. My introverts here, you're literally going to eat something you didn't order so you don't have to talk to them. Here's the thing. If you treat the waitress at Brenda's like garbage, do you think your kids don't see that? So here's the thing about discipleship. Jesus interacts with people and he uses that to teach his boys. Come on now. First stage of this trip, Jesus has these personal encounters that he intends to be recorded for eternity in Scripture so that you might learn from them. So I got a buddy and... Um, he came to Christ when I was in college. Uh, we were connected to this black gospel church. He was like guitar major and he was like snorting cocaine and was like really big into like the political green party. He makes the Democratic Party look like 
far right, all right? So that's where he was at politically. And he was just spun off and heard the gospel. And just like we had a baptism today, it reminded me, he, he came to hear the gospel and get saved, and it changed his heart and um, started to grow up in our Baptist, most crazy conservative Baptist church. Eventually gets licensed the gospels. One of my favorite brothers, I interact with him every week. Um, and now he's doing like, he did research psychology, and now he's doing... Um, advanced mathematics and statistics and writing programs and algorithms and it's probably going to create the cyborg because it's going to kill us all don't worry all right and so i just love this brother he's just he, he so radically changed by the gospel when he got saved he told me a story about his family he said his i think it was his grandpa had uh there was a widow woman that was in their church in texas in north texas and this widow woman her her husband had died and she was in a tough place for money. She lived like Social Security check to Social Security check. And so she decided to have a garage sale and she was going to sell some of her husband's stuff and go out there. So this grandpa loads up my buddy's dad, puts him in the pickup truck. They go over and they go to this woman's house. And he said, uh, looked in her yard and there was an old transmission that had been there for 50 years. Now, if you don't know why there's a transmission in that yard, you've not been to Texas. All right, because they will take toilets and old bathtubs and plant flowers in them. I'm acting like it is in Oklahoma too, but it is. All right, and so he goes there and he sees his transmission. He says, "Oh my goodness, Myrtle or whatever her name is." Um, it's like this is exactly you know what I'm looking for, and she's like, "What? That it's rusted. It's blah blah blah." And he says, "No, no, no," and I, I know exactly what it what it was worth and all this stuff. And he gives her an outrageous amount of money to help take care of her. And they load up this transmission and they drive it straight to the dump and they got rid of it. And the grandpa looks at my buddy's dad and says, you don't ever say anything to her about that. And it says, we have a responsibility to take care of those that God has entrusted to our care. And we don't let our right hand know what our left hand's doing. That story passed down to my buddy and influenced the way that he thinks about serving people in the community to this day. And now we're in Colorado and I'm retelling the story. That story of how a grandfather taught his son in a personal encounter of caring for someone has been a part of the legacy of that family. And if, I, if, if we open the mic up right now, we're not going to, even though Kathy did a great job today. If we open the mic today and I said, come tell me a story that you've heard that's like that, that influenced your walk with Jesus, I bet there's tons of Christians in here that would walk up to this mic and tell crazy God-honoring stories that none of us will know this side of heaven. Moms, dads, neighbors, Christians in here, are you using personal encounters to make disciples? Because Jesus is on a road trip and he's showing his boys through how he's interacting with the rich young ruler. So I want to zoom out and just say, in case you didn't get the physical illustration, Here's what happens next on the road trip. He not only shows them this personal encounter, he's going to break it down and he's going to coach it up. So look at verse 23. So the encounter happens. Dude walks away sad. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples. So just get it in your mind. Homeboy's walking away. He's walking away. And Jesus is going to look at them, at his disciples and say... What happens next in this text? Right? 
And I would say it's pretty staggering. Let me, let, me, let me just read it and then we'll come back and look at it. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That's staggering. Because I stand before the most wealthy civilization that has ever existed on the planet. You may say, I'm not that rich. Compared to who? You have luxuries in your house that kings 200 years ago didn't have. You literally live better than kings. Do you understand that half of the world lives on less than $2 a day? If somebody dropped $2 in this church, most adults wouldn't bend over to pick it up. Now, our kids would dogpile to get it, right? Cheapskates. $2 a day. You, the, I don't know, demographically, the poorest five families in this church are the still top hyper wealth in the whole world. So here's the thing about this text. We think it's Bill Gates. That's right, Jesus, you get Elon Musk. What's he building rockets for? Right? While you drive home in your car that most of the earth doesn't have. You have indoor plumbing. Okay. Family size in America in the last 50 years has decreased by 25%. Size of the houses we build and we buy has increased by 50. Not only are houses bigger... Do you realize that there are five times, this is an old statistic, it's probably not even accurate anymore, there are five times more storage facilities than there are Starbucks. And we got those like the plague. Five times. And what is your storage facility? Your storage facility is the junk that I don't want to put in my house that's 50% bigger than what my parents or grandparents had i got to store that junk somewhere else. Our barns have bigger barns. It's a concrete floor with a lock and walls. Most of people around the earth live in a worse space than you store your junk. So, when we hear this text, we got to... It's not about someone else. This is about us, right? Where you, where you store your junk is better than where most people put their family down to sleep. When he's talking to the wealthy, he's talking to us, y'all. How hard it is for the hyper-wealthy. And, and let's be honest, like we live in Colorado too, which is awesome, praise God. Hallelujah. Right? It's like you ain't even living in Arkansas. Right? I don't even talk to Isaac about what a three-bedroom, two-bath house here, if you sold it, you could buy half of Arkansas. Now, your neighbors, I'll tell you, been there. The question is, can a person in La County actually get saved? 
I mean, this is the question begged by Jesus in this text. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's going to be difficult for anybody in our county to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Yeah, they're amazed. You think that we're the first generation that's bought into a a version of the prosperity gospel? They were amazed at his words. And Jesus, I love this. He's coaching them. He says to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Take out the wealth. It's hard for everybody to enter the kingdom of God. Right? Wealth is kind of a universal passport. It's a key that opens all kinds of doors if you're wealthy, right? But when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's actually an extra lock on the door. It ain't opening this door. How difficult it is. How difficult is it, Jesus? Verse 25, here's how difficult it is. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard stuff that dates back to the 9th century that there was a gate at Jerusalem that camels would have to get down on their knees and get rid of all their bags in order to access. Anybody ever heard that before? Um, And so some people will say the eye of the needle is a gate and this sort of stuff, but I, I think you should let this hit. I think it's the largest animal that the disciples would have seen that day. And an eye of a needle is like the smallest uh, like, like portal by which something has to go through. And he's saying, that camel, that needle hole. I think that's the simple, straightforward. And the reason why I believe that's the easiest interpretation of this is because verse 26, then he'll go on saying, they were exceedingly astonished. Camels and eyes of the needle kind of do that to you. And they said to him, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Let this hit you how it hits you. Impossible. With your own good works, your money, I dare say good looks. Impossible. You bring literally, figuratively, symbolically, metaphorically, nothing to the salvation equation. You bring no merits. You got nothing to barter. You got no leverage. You bring nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Nothing. And so it's impossible for you to do anything to save yourself. But with God, with God, even uppity, rich, hyper-wealthy Coloradans can get saved. Praise God. Even people like you can get saved with God. And it's going to look like a miracle. Because of your wealth. Because of this extra hurdle that people in the world, they just, they simply don't have. But with God, all things are possible. Now, what's, what's heavy about this is, the rich young ruler walked away. 
And Jesus did not chase him down and change the standard. He said, oh, you don't got to follow me. Just follow Muhammad. Oh, you don't really need to repent of your idolatry. No, no, no. You... He doesn't move the goalpost. He doesn't apologize for the way being narrow and, and few finding it. Come on now. A lot of us in our churches, we've come and try to explain away Christianity. Oh, what Jesus really meant in the Greek was, you know, he didn't mean camels, you know, needles. This word difficult, it doesn't mean difficult. Impossible doesn't mean impossible. He doesn't do what modern evangelicals do and try to move the goalpost. The way is as narrow as Jesus Christ himself. And there is no way to the Father except through him. And he's going to let some people walk away. Uh, it was great having Brian here. Um, Ryan Young told the story at camp uh, at Whiteout. He talked about that at one camp that he was doing up in Montana, that he talked about biblical sexuality and homosexuality and transgenderism and the cult that is built around that movement that is antithetical to Christianity and the gospel. And he began to lay out the truth of people that are caught in sexual sin need to repent of that sin and come trust Jesus for forgiveness. And because he was not accepting and affirming that sin, that is, by the way, destroying those kids, because he wouldn't do that, he said he had uh, two girls in the crowd get up and walk out and leave. Like, leave the event they were doing. They were... And he didn't come back and say, oh, well, what the Bible says isn't what the Bible says, and he didn't change the goalpost, he didn't move or smudge on it. He says, the truth is the truth. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. And he lets them walk away. At the same time, there are people, and we'll get to this with Peter, who says, I am going to leave everything. We came and followed you. Look at the next passage. The next passage says, Peter began to say to him. So it sounds like because it's the word began, it means that some Peter often uh, repeated. See, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. Now, it's curious that Peter speaks up, right? Because in... Chapter 1 of Mark and um, Matthew chapter 4, we learn about their calling. And a lot of people often describe Peter and Andrew, James, and John, the first four disciples, as kind of blue-collar, rough, you know, had a forearm tattoo, low, kind of... But the truth of the matter is that if you go back and read of these four disciples, they had boats, nets, fathers had businesses. And matter of fact, it even describes in Mark that they had servants, you know, or another way to put that, they had employees. You could argue from this that Peter, Andrew, James, and John came from a family that had a business, a small business, large business, a fishing business. When he's hearing that wealth gets in the way of getting saved, did, he's like the person in the crowd. He's like, so Jesus, just about that whole like wealth thing, right? We left everything. We're good, Right? Right? That sermon's not for me, is it? Right? You're talking about the guy that's walking away, not me, right? And it hits him. And he says, Jesus, we left everything and followed you. 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house and brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. Notice, not just leaving them for the sake of asceticism, not leaving it for their self-righteousness. It says leaving them for my sake. Again, Christianity is Jesus-centric. And for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold. 
Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. It's like, oh, well, you could have left that out, Jesus. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Dave Rickett in here. So I'll ask Randy, who's our like, resident um, accountant. Hundredfold. Do you have any stocks that we could all invest in? That if we give one, we get hundredfold return. Oh, that's a bummer. Keep us updated. Hundredfold? Like... Homeschool kids, that's a lot of math. Hundredfold? Lands and family? Family and lands and in, you inherit. The one thing that I've tried to repeat here, whether it's our giving and offerings or giving in time or sa- sacrifice or service, you are never out giving God. God will not allow a mortal man or mortal woman to give more to him than he gives to them in return. But notice a hundredfold of kids and brothers and land. Here, I'll put it this way. Chris Krug, how many, how many biological brothers you got? One. It's a low number. Once a week. How many brothers you got in this room? Don't count. How many, how many brothers you got in Christ? A couple, right? More than one. Johnny, how many kids you got in Colorado? Hundreds. How, many, how much family do you, do you realize you have family in Africa? Indonesia? Lands that the kingdom has taken for Jesus that are a part of your inheritance? There's like, you got like three family members in Europe. That's why we got to pray for France. Some of you would say that as you started following Jesus, it created unique conflicts and division and swords with your biological family. And there's some of you that would say that what you inherited as far as spiritual family is innumerable by comparison. Some of you are double blessed because your biological family trusts Christ and is your eternal spiritual family. Amen. Jesus comes to him and says it's possible, but with God things are possible that you could not ever imagine look at the next passage and I I think all of this is a context for where I want to finish here verse 32 and they were on the road and they're on the road again said Willie Nelson and it's like they're not done they're not finished more things to learn they're on the road again Going up to Jerusalem, which in Scripture is where the prophets are killed and where Jesus is going to be crucified. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. So I just get this vision of Jesus. He's power walking like he's in an airport. And the disciples are trying to keep up. And look at, we've got a lot of amazement in this passage. House church leaders bring that out this week in your house churches. And they were amazed and those that followed were afraid. Has anybody had that be their spiritual life? A mingling of fear and amazement. We've we've taught this from Matthew chapter 28 before, that until your amazement and joy in Jesus is greater than your fear, you'll never follow Him to the cross. 
There's never going to be a time in your walk with Jesus where you're not going to be afraid. There's going to be fear. But His love and its perfection is going to cast out that fear. And if you will fix your eyes on Him who walks ahead of you and be amazed by His grace and His love and His setting His face like flint for Jerusalem, if you'll simply keep your eyes on Him and follow Him, it will evaporate that fear that would cripple you and cause your feet to not move. Let the amazement of the Gospel overcome your fear of what other men might think of you or what other men might do to you or the jokes that they'll throw at you or the shade and disrespect they'll roll to you. Be deaf to them and be attentive to the Jesus that walks ahead of you. And He began to tell them and He was taking the twelve again and He began to tell them what was to happen to Him. He is predicting his death in Jerusalem. Chapter 11 through chapter 16 is going to be the triumphal entry. And we're going to spend time on the cross there. Listen to this. In saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, this is a designation for himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. This is the religious authority. This is the political authority. This is academia. This is everybody out throughout our lives that we want to oppress because they are the people that are the gatekeepers of where we want to get into. Those people are not going to accept Jesus. Instead, they're going to do a Tony Soprano mafia style hit on him. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. I don't have enough time to say this, but if this is Yom Kippur, this is Jesus having the sins of the people cast onto him and him being sent outside the gate to the Gentiles for our sin. To the Gentiles, Jesus, we don't want to give you over to the... We don't want you to go to them. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three, and after three days, he will rise. Look at those words. And this is where we're ending. We're, let's end on the gospel. Mock. Now here's the thing. This is hard for some of us men. Because in this room, men mock each other all the time for fun. It's like playing ping pong. Right? You've got banter back and forth. There's a way in which, and this is how men oftentimes operate. We mock each other to see if people can take it. It's almost like an arm wrestling contest verbally. You mock people that you want to see if you can trust them and care for them and you kind of make fun of them and there's a way to do that with affection. There's also, and I think everybody in here that even does that for fun would acknowledge, there's a level of mocking where it goes to somewhere else where we actually mock people we hate. We mock people we hate. And there's, a, there's not just a little bit, of, it's not playful, it's a twisting of the knife, isn't it? It's looking for the button that can't be unpushed. It's accusations that murder their character. Then it says they're going to spit on him. And I don't know if even the majority of people here have been in such a violent, dangerous position where somebody has spit on you, has so hated you, that that, I mean... In today's world with the mask and COVID, that's like, 
You're like some sort of velociraptor dinosaur, like killing somebody if you spit on them. But you realize like even 100 or 200 years ago, if one man spit on another man, they got pistols and shot each other. Like, is there a more disrespectful, maybe slapping, right? But out of the two, go ahead and slap me. Don't do spit. You're going to spit on me? You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm saved enough to handle being spit on. Just be real. They spit on the creator of the universe. Then they flog him. They're going to rip his back open. They're going to bruise him, as Isaiah would say. All of this, Jesus is saying, is, a prof- is fulfillment of prophecy. Happened hundreds of years before he came. He's like, they're going to flog me. They're going to tenderize his back like it's meat. Anybody have back trouble this week? Talk about how painful and debilitating that is. They tenderized your Lord like He was meat. And then, to top it off, they're going to kill Him. He's going to be murdered unjustly. He's going to be treated like a criminal and murdered. They're going to deal to Him the death that you deserve. He's going to be baptized with fire, and yet He's going to rise from the ashes, bringing eternal life to dying men. He's going to rise. Because your sin can't keep our Jesus in the grave. Your death can't keep Him in the grave. All of hell can't keep Him in the grave. His life is going to conquer death. That's the Gospel. Would you walk with Jesus on the road? Would you go on a pilgrimage with Him? Would you take up your own cross and follow Him? Have you put your faith in Him? Have you put your trust in Him? Let me pray for you. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up. I don't know where your journey is taking you right now, what twists and turns is happening in your walk. But here's something that I believe. Nobody is in the point of the road that they're at by accident. Everybody you're meeting right now, everybody that's in your life, every conflict, every hard thing that you are facing is tailor fit by God to draw you to repentance and to keep your eyes on Him. And if God is your, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if God is bringing some particular situation in your journey to the front of your heart and mind right now, would you just trust Him with that? Would you let Him coach you up on that? Would you not handle it with your own strength, but let Him do the impossible in that situation that right now is in your heart and mind? Would you walk with the Lord through that? Listen, I don't know what it is, but I believe the Holy Spirit has something for each one of us. 
that God is using as a teaching tool, an illustration. He's mailing it to us as an invitation to come follow Him. What I want to do now is I want to pray for you that maybe taking a step in surrendering that thing is a step in surrendering your whole life to Him. Or maybe it's you, Christian, and the next thing that He wants to bring fruit out of is you just surrendering that thing. I'm going to pray for whatever the bend in the road is for you right now. That you would give it to Him and let Him teach you. Dear Heavenly Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth in the situations that are represented all across this room. My brothers and my sisters and my friends here. God, You know every heart and mind and every journey and every situation and every step of faith that has to be taken. Holy Spirit, bring clarity where there is cloudiness. Bring truth where there's confusion. Coach us. Draw us. God, help us to keep our eyes on you even when we're walking behind you and we're scared. God, work and do the impossible for your glory's sake. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing?